uh, we are going to continue on in our Doctrines of Grace Sunday School series. And so, um, it, it, again, we're going to be looking at texts today because you shouldn't believe, just to repeat for the thousandth time, something just because Tyler says it. You should not be reformed just because some of your favorite uh, folks from church history are reformed. You should be reformed because that's what the Bible uh, that's what the Bible says. That's what, that's why you should be. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't, if you don't think that, um, then you shouldn't believe it. Okay. Let me pray for us. Let me get this open situated here and we will jump in. Lord Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful to again, be able to study these things, these truths. We pray that you would give us clarity we pray that the things that need to be remembered, uh, particularly where each person is maybe in their season of life or their journey in understanding these things, they would be remembered. And perhaps some of the other things that are true, but nevertheless not as important for them, um, they, they would just forget. Um, that, that, that We wouldn't go over so much material that everyone walks away just uh, feeling like they got hit with a shotgun or something, but that, um, that, that people would be able to process these things and even take one or two things away they could really chew on that'd be helpful understanding your sovereignty and moving towards sinners uh, in need of salvation so we pray uh, that you would be with us during this time in a special way in the name of jesus please amen all right so if you'll recall last time um we we uh talked about genesis 1 and 2 the, the creation was very good and we talked about the fall um we, we 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 pointed out that if you were to just read genesis chapter 3 it's not entirely clear that you would come to the conclusions about the extent of man's depravity i don't think anyone would actually if you go back and read genesis 3 i don't think you would i think you would say all right childbearing is going to be hard there's going to be marital strife and working the ground is going to be hard as a result of the fall i think that's what everyone would conclude as a result, of, and then as you get to Genesis 6, for example, and every thought and desire of their hearts were continuously wicked, you're like, whoa, whoa, even more must have happened. And the biblical story unpacks the pervasiveness of sin. We talked about the total corruption of sin and clarified that it doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. Okay, that's not what it means. And it doesn't mean that people are not capable of doing civil goods. Someone who is a God hater, someone who rejects God altogether can stop and help someone on the side of the road, uh, can give to charity, can give someone the shirt off their back. You know, folks, just like this. So it's not to say that everyone's as bad as they uh, could be or that they can't do any civil good. But that every part of who we are is tainted by sin, that we are haters of light. Uh, of the light, that is, and uh, we are unable to discern spiritual things, unable to please God. That's this idea. We talked about the imputation of the sin of the first Adam parallel to the imputation of the righteousness of the second Adam. Uh, we sinned in Adam, and we are credited with his uh, sin and therefore guilt, just like we are credited with Christ's righteousness and that we don't have to commit our first sin to be declared guilty, just like we do not have to perform an act of righteousness to be declared righteous. That is the doctrine of imputation. But we also talked about conveyance. Someone, does anyone remember what conveyance is that's different from imputation? Like the imputation of sin, but the conveyance of sin? What's that? Anyone remember? 
conveyance of sin would be the sinful nature that is actually passed on that leads to people actually sinning. So we are born with a sinful nature in Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So if I have a corrupt, sinful heart and a sinful nature, guess what I have to pull out of that? Sin. That's what I have. I can pull everything I want out of it, and it's all just going to be sin until um, I get a new heart that is capable of having good in it. That is to say, good that is pleasing to God. Um, And so we talked about Adam representing all of mankind, uh, and, and we talked about that being called federalism. Uh, if you've heard that language before, that Adam is the federal head. Federal just comes from the Latin word meaning covenant. That's what that means. That's why that's picked. Federal just means it comes from the Latin word meaning uh, covenant. So if you've heard of federal vision, no one asks any questions about it. I'm just saying it, it, it's a co- it just is covenant. It's a covenant vision. Okay. All right. Questions about that. That's where we left off, and that's where we're about to move forward in in chapter six. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. God said that the the heart of man mm-hmm. was continually evil. Yeah. That, that you know, that, as a matter of fact, that there was no thought of anything right. that was not evil. Yeah. Thereby he brought Floyd mm-hmm. right down. I believe that we live in a time now of a restraining grace. There's no like a Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would be be explained by a restraining grace that Mm. keeps us. We're we're not as bad as we are because we're we keep ourselves from doing that way. Yeah, it's God that does that. Well, that restraining grace would it would it have been in effect at that time? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, that's a that's a, a a fine point. And so the question is, I said, well, not everyone is bad as they could be. And then in Genesis six, it's like, wow, maybe people were as bad as they could be. Um, I think we do have to take the 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 statement in Genesis six um, uh, as a meaningful hyperbole, um, because notice that even in the context of Genesis six, not everyone was uh, always going around killing each other, exterminating their own families. In fact, you had Noah, and um, he was righteous, but it doesn't say that his family was necessarily righteous, right? They were saved because of Noah and his righteousness. And so I, I, don't, I certainly think that you have the common grace of God present there. You wouldn't have had anyone left. Um, I think you would have something like the purge, if, if, if you're familiar with that. And uh, so, yeah, I think that it was, so what I would say is it was present now, but it's also, I would say it was also present then. And that what this is is a, is a statement about, um, the effects of sin in Genesis 6 that have gotten so bad that justifies the flood. So it's not supposed to be a fine, a really fine-tooth comb, uh, a systematic theological statement. In the narrative, it says that in order to justify the entire destruction of everything that is coming, uh, and to say something like, there was just absolute rampant wickedness, and no one was obeying the mandate that God had given uh, Adam, and then there was this one guy, Noah, who was righteous. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there any way to gauge whether today the sinfulness that we see is 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm skeptical that there is. I mean, I don't know how you would. I mean, every age has seen a lot of bizarre wickedness, you know, and it's just looked different. It's took taken different shapes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if, if there's a way to say, oh, yeah, qualitatively, we've descended back down into the pre-Noahic. I, I mean, I, I take the, the statement there again to mean there was rampant, deep-seated, entrenched evil. And I think right now in the culture, there is rampant, seated, but I don't know how to do a comparison. I don't know how someone would do that. I don't, I don't know how exactly that would work. Fine question, though. Very, very fine question. All right. Um, any other questions about last week before we move on? All right. Well, we're in uh, ch- uh, paragraph three of the confession. And paragraph three of the confession says uh, this. Uh, that being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, now being conceived in sin, and they by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin are, and then you get the consequences of sin, which is where we're picking up here, the subjects of death and all other misery, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. The consequences for sin. What are the consequences for sin? This is probably not something... Uh, that uh, is going to be new for anybody, but it is important to see it in the Bible and not uh, have me tell you. So our readers, our our, uh, excellent readers from last time, I'm sure have showed up in full force and are prepared to read with a loud voice and a little bit of velocity. So who wants to read Ezekiel 7, 5 through 9? Who's eager to do that? Asher. Michael Willis is eager to read John 3, 36. Romans 3, 19 through 26. Romans 3, 19 through 26. Glenn. And then uh, who, oh, who wants to, everyone, Romans 6, 23. Someone who wants to quote Romans 6, 23. Be there. For the, what? And what, what's the next part? The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence in that one. So we don't have to turn that. The wages of sin is death. Death. All right. And Ephesians 2.3. He wants to read Ephesians 2.3. Then Scott can read Ephesians 2.3. All right. So listen, everyone read again with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity here. And we're going to understand the consequences for sin, keeping in mind that all of these are just representative examples. There are many other texts that we could turn to. All right. Consequences for sin from Ezekiel 7, 5 through 9. Excellent. Okay. Pretty damning indictment of sin there, right? There in Ezekiel chapter 7 and, uh, and, and the consequences for it. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. 
Okay, so the, talking about the, the, wrath, the wrath of God is what? Already on everyone then, right? And the wrath of God is going to remain on people who do not embrace the Son, John tells us in John chapter 3. All right, Romans 3, 19 through 26. It's a beautiful passage here. Okay, excellent. So you get this beautiful picture of sin and the consequences of sin right up next to the gospel. I mean, that, that right there is like a couple of sermons, right? So we don't have time to unpack that whole beautiful section here of Romans 3. That but now is like the biggest sigh anyone could breathe after what we just read. The but now. You tell me there's a righteousness that comes apart from doing? <gasps> so there's hope. There's hope. There's not just living a righteous life, which isn't enough still. There's hope. There's a different kind of righteousness apart from the law. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, all must be punished. But the whole, the whole thing of the gospel is someone else gets punished in our stead, and that's Jesus Christ. And so that God can be both just, but He can be a justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He can declare them righteous, but still be a just judge. Because um, through the law comes knowledge of sin, and sin deserves his wrath. And in fact, that's what it says, the last verse there. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 20, uh, um, uh, uh, I lost my spot here. Where's the, uh, where's the, uh, yeah, there it is, sorry. This, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Well, guess what? Passing over former sins doesn't mean that they get a pass. It just means that he was waiting to, but, but they still needed justice. Justice still had to be exacted. And so in his forbearance, he waited. He didn't just wipe everyone out, but he nevertheless had to show his righteousness by punishing sin. Consequences of sin, punishment, wrath of God, but Christ provides a way so that God can simultaneously be just, but also declare us righteous. Okay, we already know Romans 6.23, and then let's just the last one, Ephesians 2.3, which is yeah, the most succinct, pithy statement of it all. Children of wrath. Okay? Consequences of sin is we end up being the appropriate object of God's wrath and therefore would be it would therefore be just of God to send everyone to hell. And that's very important. It's extremely important. It would be just of God to send everyone to hell. All right? No one is entitled to grace. No one is entitled to it. 
if grace is something that is entitled to, we're now dealing with something that's not really grace. It's some kind of hybrid version that isn't grace. Okay? Consequences for sin. All right, finally in this section, let's talk about the indwelling sin after regeneration. Because you might think, hey, after we are regenerated and made new, uh, then you don't sin anymore. I mean, that, that stands to reason, doesn't it? Well, it stands to reason, but it's just not the case. All right, it's not the case. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that that's not the case. So let's get uh, four readers here. Four readers. Romans 7, 18 through 25 is Paul's famous struggle with sin here. Romans 7, 18 through 25. Then Ward. James 4, 1. It's a quick one. Hunter. John, uh, 1 John 1, 8. And then Galatians 5, 17. Asher. And while people are turning to those, let me just point out that the consequences of, of sin um, temporally as a result of the fall uh, are for everyone. Everyone endures those general consequences of the fall, but the consequences are eternal for those who don't embrace Christ. Okay, So there, in other words, the unbeliever doesn't get out of, for example, the sufferings of this world brought on by the fall. Those are still consequences of uh, consequences uh, of the fall. All right, Romans chapter seven, eighteen through twenty-five. Listen to Paul's uh, famous struggle with sin here. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, and not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil. For I do not the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that even, or I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, so Paul's talking about this duality in here. There's this flesh that serves something, and there's this now, though, because of Christ, there's a mind that is capable of serving someone else. And it's every day is going to be a battle for my heart. Every day is a battle for my heart and flesh. That's what we're going to see in Galatians 5, 17. Paul's indwelling sin, this Adamic residue that is still abiding as a result of the fall. We can't get out of it uh, all, uh, until we are made new. Until we are made new. James 4, 1. Listen to this. James 4, 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? It's not a source Yes, and so is that uh, New King James? Nasby. Oh, Nasby. Okay, yeah, I like I, I like that. How does it? Is it not? Is it what? What is it? The not your desires that wage war in your members? What it says. Okay, yeah, fantastic. So it what it essentially does is is it's talking about how what 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 is the fundamental source of these conflicts and these fights and quarrels you have. Well, it's, it's, it's your passions. It is your sin within you. And, and really, these are just symptoms of those things coming out. Those are just symptoms of these things coming out. It's your desires that battle within you. 
uh, as um, either the ESV or the NIV has. Good. So 1 John 1 8. Okay, about as straightforward as you can get, right? When John's saying, if we, we're saying that we're people we don't, who, who don't sin, um, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, right? Purify us um, from all of our transgressions. Uh, so if we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves. And then finally, Galatians 5.17. This is the explicit battle for my heart that goes on every day. Okay, so there's the battle. Which desires are going to win out? Every day, the spirit suits up, so to speak. The flesh suits up, so to speak. Every day is a battle. Who wins? And moment to moment, in this moment of my thought life, who's winning? Who's going to win? In this, in this moment when I'm interacting with my spouse, who's going to win? When I'm frustrated over here, which, one's gonna, which one is going to win? Every moment, every day. This is pictured as this battle that's within me. And sanctification can largely be understood of the process of the Spirit progressively winning those, those battles, you might say, over the flesh as we grow in Christ-likeness. So Christians no longer suffer from total inability. Um, in a, uh, they're being light haters. But despite that, there remains this uh, Adamic residue on us, this sinful nature that we are called to mortify in the process of Christian sanctification as we could become more like Christ and press in to grace. So that really concludes the, uh, uh, the homartiology, this, this doctrine of sin that we're looking at from the confession itself. Um, oh, I forgot. I, I, didn't, I, I forgot I had that on there. Yeah, so that's, this is what the confession says. It's worth reading. The corruption of nature during this life does remain and that those who are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Still sin. It's still sin. Regardless of the fact that they are, we are regenerated and pardoned. Um, so let me just, this is just a little cliff notes summary of our doctrine of sin coming out of the confession and I'm just going to read through them. Uh, these are just, again, uh, the, these are this is just the cliff notes of what we've already been over here if you've missed some of this. Sinful actions flow from sinful natures inherited from Adam and Eve who transgressed God's law in the garden. Every aspect of who we are as creatures has been stained by sin in some way, rendering us unable to desire or think rightly about God left to our sinful state, point one. Point two, because Adam represented humanity, we do not have to commit our first sin in order to be guilty, just as we do not have to perform a, a righteous action to be declared righteous in Christ. Both sin and righteousness are imputed by the first and second Adam, respectively. Does that make sense? Both sin and righteousness are imputed by the first and second Adam, respectively. All right? Uh, number three, in light of being a holy God and having no fellowship with darkness, God's wrath rightly falls on sinners who are the appropriate object of God's punishment as a result. And then finally, the consequences of sin are temporal for everyone, meaning everyone experiences the curses of Genesis 3 and the general effects of the fall, pain, suffering, marital strife, difficulty in labors and all of it. Uh, and even the struggle, the abiding struggle with indwelling sin. 
Um, but the consequences are eternal for those who do not receive the righteousness of Christ. Okay, and then finally, although Christians uh, no longer suffer from the total from total inability and being light haters, there there still remains this Adamic residue, a sin nature. All right, as we as the image of God continues to be restored in us. Now, here's the question coming out of doctrine, a biblical doctrine of sin. If this is the case. How does anyone end up desiring to repent and believe the gospel? I mean, if this is the description of man, dead in sin, sinful natures, incapable of discerning God, incapable of pleasing God, how does anyone go from desiring only sin and unable to please God to you know what, I have a desire to repent and believe the gospel, embrace Jesus Christ. Like, what happens there? Something has to happen, or no one would be a Christian. So what is it? Everyone has to tell a story there. And the story the Bible tells, and the second module, or the third module, I guess, that we're going to talk, uh, uh, jump into, is effectual calling and regeneration. Effectual calling and regeneration. Do I have the, uh, yes, do I have one more, point two? All right, great. This is what the confession says. Let's just read it together, okay? Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing, which is how it understands what freely is there, being made willing by His grace. This effectual uh, call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive. So this is a part of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation in which the person is wholly passive, being dead in sins. Because when you're dead, guess what you are? Passive. Right? Being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed to life by the Holy Spirit, He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised Jesus, raised up Christ from the dead. Fantastic statement here of effectual calling and regeneration. Effectual calling makes two claims. Two claims. Number one, God calls or draws sinners who are in darkness. Okay? And then two, or God, well, well let, me, let me make it more specific than that. God must show grace to people who are in darkness before they can repent and believe the gospel, and that comes in the form of a call or a drawing. That's the first claim of effectual calling. The second is that call is always effective. It always works, we'll see. There isn't anyone who is called in this particular kind of a way who does not come. Um, 
And, and, and so we're going to see in a second that calling and regeneration are, are really two sides of the same coin. They generally happen uh, at, at the same time uh, in, in uh, the, the kind of the wash of life. But certainly regeneration is at least logically prior, okay? What I mean by logically or explanatorily prior, I mean that if I died, my wife would become a widow, right? Right? But which one happens first? So you might think, oh, you're Tyler, you're asking me a trick question. How much, if I die, how much time has to elapse before my wife becomes a widow? Immediately, right? There is no time. They're not, one's not preceded another in time. There's a logical relationship. There's an explanatory, explanatory relationship. And nevertheless, it's still, I have to die first. <laughs> I still got to die for her to become, don't tell my wife this example. She gets so sad when I talk about dying. Okay, you should have seen us doing our life insurance. <laughs> anyway, but, but if I die, my wife becomes a widow. There is no uh, temporal uh, it's not extended temporarily. And, and certainly I think that a regeneration and calling in many senses, and I'll give some examples even, uh, end up being the same thing where, where one is explanatorily prior, but kind of when it happens in the process of someone actually right in front of you, repent and believe in the gospel, um, they have, they're temporarily contiguous or simultaneous. Uh, I want to point out that both Calvinists and their Arminian brothers and sisters agree that sinners must be called to God. Uh, um, in fact, the, it, uh, people are shocked to know that uh, our Arminian brothers and sisters have an extraordinarily strong doctrine of depravity. An extraordinarily strong doctrine of depravity, just as strong as the Reformers, in one sense of the word at least. We'll get to it. Um, and so they, they therefore agree that sinners have to have grace that comes before, uh, uh, and, and God has to draw people in that way uh, in order for them to respond. Um, and, and we're going to talk about what's that version of the story. We'll get there. But uh, we're going to talk about the confession's understanding here. Um, the confession's understanding is that the effectual calling of God in this regeneration and this grace is a sufficient condition for someone repenting and believing the gospel. Meaning, if it happens, if this kind of grace is extended effectually, then necessarily someone is going to uh, 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 repent and believe the gospel. Our Arminian friends are going to tell a different story about that. About what what they're gonna they're gonna allow for a kind of grace um, that is necessary but not sufficient. Not it doesn't it's not effective. Okay, having said that, let's get our judicious readers ready with their loud voices and their and their robust velocity to um, walk through a couple of pa- uh oh whoops to walk through our passages. Uh, what happened? I'm so sorry, y'all. Okay, okay, here we go. Okay, so um, so I'm going to auction them off once again, and everyone is going to eagerly participate. I feel certain. All right, John six forty four. Who wants John six forty four? Then Ward Michael Willis, I saw back there, wants John six. 63 through 60. Now, you know what? Just do John 6, 44, and then 63 through 65. John 6, 44, and then 63 through 65. Romans 8, 30. 
for 5-0 back there. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Josh, uh, 2 Timothy 1-9, Katie, 1 Peter 2-9, whoever raised their hand back there, Ben Ward. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 9 and 10. 2 Peter 1, 9 and 10. Going once, Glenn. And then finally, Jude 1, 1. Asher. Asher. can always count on Asher to raise his hand. What's y'all's problem? Okay. Love it, bud. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Love it. Okay, so in these, uh, in these texts, I want you to focus on um, this a kind of draw or a kind of call that is not just necessary. It's not just one necessary element in someone coming to faith in Christ. It is a sufficient element, meaning it entails what comes after it. Okay? All right. So John 6, 44, um, and then uh, go ahead and read 63 through 65. Okay, excellent. So let me just say that what, there is an attempt here by uh, um, there's an alternate reading you might possibly give in our this is the one the, that you have to give if 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 you're one of our Arminian brothers or sisters um, is to say that when in John six forty four no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They'll say, well, yeah, we agree. Everyone has to be drawn. There is this grace that has to come before. They're saying it's a necessary condition. Okay? But they're stopping and saying, uh, uh, but, but, it, but they say, well, that doesn't mean that, um, that everyone who has such a grace, um, is, is necess- who has that kind of draw, is going to actually become a Christian. This is just providing a necessary condition, not a sufficient um, condition. Yeah, everyone who is drawn and responds is raised up on the last day. That's that's kind of their understanding. But the problem here in the context of the passage is Jesus is explicitly trying to explain why certain people have not embraced him. Okay? Have not believed in him. And the explanation that he gives is that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Um even he's even he says um so if you back up to 41 the jews grumbled about him because he said i'm the bread that came down from heaven they said this is jesus whose father and mother we know joseph the carpenter how does he now say i've come down from heaven do not grumble among yourselves and then he gives the explanation no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i'll raise it up i'll raise him up on the last day so on this one everyone who is drawn is raised up that seems to be the picture Everyone who is drawn is raised up. There's no dropouts. Okay? That's the effectual part. Everyone who's drawn seems to get raised up. It doesn't seem to be in this passage that being drawn is just a one, one piece of the puzzle, and there need, there's a lot more that still needs to happen in order for some. No, it's that this being drawn leads to uh, down the road being raised up. Does that make sense? It's a sufficient condition, not a necessary condition. 
Okay, next, whatever the next one is, Romans 8.30. Of course, the golden chain, right? Go ahead, whoever has it. Okay, so again, there is a special kind of calling here that results in justification and glorification. That's the golden chain. There's no dropouts. There's no dropouts. God is talking with certainty about the people that he calls. Then he, then he is going to do something else to them. He is going to call them. And then those same people, he's going to justify them. And then he is going to glorify them. Okay? That is the idea. That sense of calling is the effectual call because not everyone gets that call. Why? Because not everyone ends up being justified. Not everyone's a Christian. Okay? Just like not everyone is raised up, that call here can't go. This can't be a call that everyone receives because of the preaching of the gospel, for example. This is an internal call. This is a special call that is effectual and not just a necessary component like the grace of preaching the gospel. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Okay, so this is another example. This is a subtle one. This is probably not a call, one of the call texts you might have heard if you, if you study the effectual call. But the point here is that in the passage, but to those who are called, something is, is going to tell us something about the people who are called here. Christ is the power and wisdom of God. We could ask the question, is, can everyone claim the power and wisdom of God? Is that who, they, is that who Christ is to them? No, of course not. There are people who reject Christ. And that therefore, there's a kind of call being talked about here that is, cannot apply to everyone because Christ is, because that's not how Christ relates to everyone. There are unbelievers. And in fact, the unbelievers are mentioned. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. There are people who, who, are, who stumble over that block. But then there's a contrast to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Okay? That is what he is for them because they are called. Not, he is not that for everyone. Therefore, not everyone is called in that way. The logic is very watertight. It's very straightforward. Any questions about how the, the call works there? Okay. Again, we're talking about a call that is effective that is always effectual, and that does not apply to everyone, explaining why not everyone has this, uh, 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 why not everyone has been set free from being dead in sin. Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 1.19. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I, I always do this kind of stuff. I assure you it is not you. It's not you, it's me. It's, hold on here. Let me get, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, 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 what did I mean to say? Uh, what am I doing? Second Timothy, what did I say? Second Timothy one nineteen. No, it's not zero. It's nine. Uh, yes. No, 
but I had a different text in mind. Yeah, no, maybe maybe that is it. No, I think that is what I had in mind. So yeah, so let's. Um, but but in that case, why don't you read eight and nine for us, Katie? Sorry about that, everyone. I do apologize. Okay, excellent. So again, you have we are not only we don't have a we don't only have a holy calling. You don't only have a holy claim on on uh, God does not only have a claim to you walking in holiness, but there is a called outness to it that seems to be reserved for those who have um, been given this grace, which before the ages Christ purposed that they should have. Okay, so it's another example of of a kind of calling that, to all appearances, in this case, seems to be limited. Um, and he's he's talking about a calling that he couldn't not just look at anyone and say it's not I can't you can't look at an unbeliever and say this because they don't they don't seem to be called to this called in this particular kind of a way okay okay sorry about the mix up there First uh, Peter two nine. Okay, so here is a, another example of a calling, but it's a call out of darkness. And in First Peter, writing to a Gentile audience, which it causes some people some angst, because it sound, that sounds like very Jewish language, doesn't it? It sounds very Jewish, because it is very Jewish language, but the audience is not primarily Jewish. In First Peter, uh, there are some things in there that, may, that he would never, the author would never say if he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so not only do you have that theological bomb go off in terms of on how do we understand the people of God uh, in the church, but you have this kind of calling that is, to a, that is a kind of calling that leads people out of darkness. It's a calling that is effective in bringing people out of darkness. That's even how it's defined in the passage there. Okay, a calling that leads to coming out of darkness. Okay, Second Peter 1, 9 and 10. For he who lacks these qualities, which is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Okay, so certainly here, this is some, again, this is another reference to a kind of calling that could only be extended to, that could only be applied to people who are believers and have this long set of virtues in that passage that come before that, that we are supposed to develop. And he says, make every effort to make your calling and your election sure. It's not saying, hey, make, make sure to, um, make sure that you do this so that you can be called. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. It says, make God's calling and election over your life sure by pressing into sanctification and maturity. Again, a kind of call that these people who have received, but because of how it's designated, it's a kind of call that could not be said to be a general call to everyone else. You can't look at, I can't look at an unbeliever and say, make your calling and election sure. Okay? You can only look at a believer and say that. It's kind of a call that only a believer can claim. Okay, and finally, Jude 1. Jude 1. Okay, so 
to those who are called, but it's, oh, oh that much just means generically, right? Oh, no, it goes on to specifically clarify that those who are called, it's talking about those who are in Jesus Christ. It's delimited what the call is actually referring to. Those who are called is uh, uh, equivalent in terms of uh, extension with those who are in Christ Jesus. Not everyone is in Christ Jesus, therefore not everyone is called in that particular kind of way. Okay? All right, so we're, at, we're right at time here. Let me just summarize and say the, the idea here of the effectual call is not, the next point will be us talking about the reality of an external call. Because call is used two ways. There's two sense of calls. We, you're going to see in the parable of the, uh, 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 the feast, the feast where many are called, but few are chosen. I told all these people to come to my feast, and they're not coming. We're going to look at the reality of a genuine call to the preaching of the gospel and extension, but that is nevertheless, and that is necessary, necessary because how can they believe if they have not heard, right? There is this Romans 10 kind of, we got to, people have to hear the gospel. That's a necessary component, the external call, but it isn't effective. There are people who reject that call. There are people for whom get this kind of call and they do not respond. Whereas what we've talked about today, this effectual call, all those who receive this kind of call seem to be raised up. Okay? All right. Um, thank you for the time. Let's uh, close in prayer. I will actually not be here next Sunday, and so I'm debating about what to do with Sunday school. Um, and I, I don't know whether I want to record a video going through all these, or I want to, huh? Do, do, do that. There's one vote. Cast your vote after Sunday school, whether you want me to find something. Uh, I, I, um, he was, yeah, the Reformed Baptist pastor guy. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know quite what I'm going to do yet. Part of me likes to, when I'm going through these, uh, let people ask questions and, and, and such. And so it's kind of like it would be full lecture, and I'd be reading all the texts myself. I mean, it doesn't play quite as well on screen. I may still do it anyways. We'll, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but I will miss you all. Uh, I'll be driving back from uh, Gatlinburg, and we'll have a... Uh, uh, a faithful brother bringing the word to us uh, from the pulpit. But anyways, let's uh, close in prayer and uh, uh, we will uh, move on forward with our uh, with our morning. Lord Jesus, again, um, thank you for helping us consider these things, particularly the effectual call of God uh, and uh, your drawing us and that those who are drawn in this particular kind of way are transformed. And they are transformed in a way that always leads to justification and therefore always leads to eternal life. We're thankful, Lord, for this grace. We understand that it would have been just to send all of us to hell. Um, and so we have nothing but thanks and deep praise and wonder for the gospel such that you could be both just and the justifier of those in Christ Jesus. Be with us in our next service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.